Welcome to the Simpleton Podcast, take seven. <laughs> All right, this is the official podcast of Simple House. Please like, subscribe, share. Um, Laura Heyman is coming to you from the Catholic epicenter of Hyattsville, Maryland. I'm in Hyattsville. Hey, I see Clark. you've upgraded your background there. I have a map and books to show that I am a reliable source of information now. You're also cultured. I see a piano yes, in the background. That too. Yes, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Lots uh, of signaling. I'm, I'm in my wood shop, which was cleaned. And if you see a little red thing in the background, that's my 1978 wheel horse tractor. I really see a difference in your wood shop, Clark. You do? Um, no, you don't. All right. Never mind. This, this is, I'll get, someday we'll do a tour of the wood shop. Your tractor All right. looks nice. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, all right. This podcast is about the traditionalist movement in the Catholic Church that I think a lot of people are noticing. We're going to do this over three episodes. Um, Some people who are tuning into this are apprehensive of this new traditionalist movement in the church. And we're hoping that by explaining where it's coming from and explaining what might be troubling within it, uh, those people will kind of understand where their apprehension is coming from. We're also hoping that people who are all for this movement will seize some of these um, ideas and critiques and concerns and take them seriously, too. I think that we're in an interesting position on this because we've been spending our whole life trying to figure out Vatican II. And if you're a 20-something now, you're even further from the council than we were 20-somethings trying to figure this out. And there's less people uh, to even consult with who remember both sides of it. And there's a big unwritten history of Vatican II. Why why do you call it unwritten, Clark? I call it unwritten because the Vatican II was so polarizing on both sides, both people who mm-hmm. wanted to reject it because it wasn't, you know, they, they saw them as they saw themselves as conservative and it is not conservative and people who thought they wanted it to be far more than it was, you know, mm-hmm. um, that whenever you got like a take on Vatican II, you had to ask, is this just a, you know, hack job from one of these more extremist elements? Sure. Right. Yeah. And trying to get any type of balanced view of it was difficult. I mean, it is yeah. difficult. It's, I was going to say still is. Then. Yeah. It's yeah. like a political <laughs> hot button. Yeah. Right. And if you see a written uh, history of Vatican II, your first question is, what's the weird agenda on this? You know? Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Vatican II. We're going to talk about the need for more traditionalism after Vatican II, some of the silly things that happened and why we needed a traditionalist movement to begin with. And we're going to talk about um, the traditionalist movement later in two more episodes and talk about some of the open secrets within the movement, what like formators are saying about it, other worrying concerns. We're going to talk about the social and psychological issues within the movement, and we're going to talk about possible heresies that can be in the movement. But this episode's not that. This episode's talking about why we needed more traditionalism. Mm-hmm. The best way... In- to get a handle on Vatican II is to read John the 23rd, the Pope who opened the council, St. John the 23rd. And he is a really good speaker. And his opening speech at the council is great. Um, and it's, it's short. Everyone should go read it if you want to get deeper in this issue. Yeah, it's, I, easy, it's easy to read. The, also, the announcement of the council is even shorter. Yes. I didn't yeah. find that to have as many zingers, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was kind of surprisingly hard to find a good source for this. I was surprised that the Vatican website did not come up when we were looking for the introductory mm-hmm. remarks. But his, his three main points were, 
that, hey, I'm getting bothered by a bunch of people who think the <laughs> modern world is the worst thing that ever happened. Mm-hmm. And they think that all the history of the church was like roses up until now. And they don't see any like good way forward. And he disagrees with that. He says these prophets of gloom are wrong. Um, and we're, they're always forecasting disaster, but we have to move ahead, you know? Yep. He's saying that we need to take uh, the teaching of the church and actually engage in dialogue with the modern world. And he, the third way he's saying about that is that we need to do that in a way that's not as much like, hey, we're in charge and we're ready to condemn heresy, which may have been a historical situation the church was in. Yeah. But we're more like we're leading with mercy rather than severity is the way he put it. Yeah. And we I think need to he, show... Go ahead. As, as part of that, he had kind of some ecumenical goals in mind, like Protestants weren't so much the enemy, you know, that had right. kind of uh, arisen. Right. So, yeah. And we mm-hmm. need to be more worried about showing how our teaching is valid mm-hmm. as opposed to just condemning things that are not valid. Yeah, like valid and good. And from this, he very overtly states, uh, I'd say, three objectives. First objective is we're going to update canon law. Yeah, and it's important to know, like, canon law is not the dogma or the doctrine of the church. It's basically, like, the rules and implementation, you know, of how to govern the church, how to run the church. Yeah, I'd say the thing that most people are familiar with is the annulment process. Yeah. Where it's like we have this teaching that there is no such thing as divorce uh, in a Catholic marriage, but then how you exactly discern what marriages deserve to be annulled or weren't valid from the beginning, mm-hmm. that's a canon law issue, not right. a doctrine issue. Right. right. So it is an implementation of doctrine. Yeah. All right. Then he all, his, the second objective was to allow Catholic theology to engage with modern and postmodern thought. Yeah. And the third objective is just kind of a a guardrail thing to say how we're going to do the first two. He says very explicitly, we are not changing the teachings of the church or the doctrines of the church. Yeah. Yeah. So it it wasn't his intention to like concede to the moderns or, you know, to modern thought. And I think like one thing he said is like the substance of the doctrine is one thing and the way it's presented is another. Um, Right. So how, how can we get the modern mind to engage with the substance of the doctrine? So he sees the doctrine not just at, as actually a pastoral reality also. Mm-hmm. Like we are, yeah. it's how do we preach it? How do we get this news out into the world? Yeah. And the main way they wanted to engage the modern world was to go back to scripture and tradition, meaning the fathers mm-hmm. of the church and scripture as a source mm-hmm. of um, Catholic teaching. And I believe that this was very much uh, brought into being by like, John Henry Newman's conversion. Mm-hmm. That he converted not because of the neo-scholasticism that was popular at the time, but he converted because while reading the fathers of the church and looking at scripture, he saw that the Catholic church was true. Yeah. Right? And so we're bringing this to the forefront, this kind of Oxford movement mentality. And how do we explain why we needed this correction? My best explanation is that theology had become a little bit of kind of a derivative study where it was like you stood on the shoulders of the people who came before you and built on top of their work. And this resourcement idea is not that idea. It's like going back to the original sources. So 
Most famously, we stood on the shoulders of St. Thomas Aquinas, and they're good, trustworthy shoulders, yeah. but it created this kind of incompleteness in thought. It, it's from what I understand, uh, the seminaries had developed these kind of like textbooks. So it wasn't even like primary source Thomas Aquinas. It was like basically math textbook of everything the church teaches via right. Thomas Aquinas in this big textbook. <laughs> right. Like, like my education's in math and economics. And it's like in both of those fields, we don't really go back and study the originators of the concepts. Like we're not really reading Adam Smith in an economics education, but his ideas are alive and well, but they've all kind of gone through this filter and been built mm -hmm. upon, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas like in the study of theology and in the study of, um, I'd say philosophy too, there's this need to always go back to the originators of the ideas, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And in a way... If, if you ever like are curious about this, if you go back and get like 19th century theological texts and they're not from the Oxford movement, a lot of them are just, you, they seem like they're divorced from uh, the church fathers and the original sources. They just kind mm -hmm. of are always referencing stuff in the last few centuries. And it's, it's just kind of a different way, different read than if you read like the John Paul II uh, or Pope Benedict, or any of these type of more modern theologians. Mm -hmm. um, and in reality, uh, people who like to do this often cite that there's just no heirs in St. Thomas Aquinas, and I think some Pope at some point said there's St. Thomas Aquinas is completely trustworthy. And yeah. that can be completely true, and it completely misses the point. Yeah, Aquinas built from the original sources, right? Yeah. And if you only build from Aquinas, you are dismissing a lot of um, scripture and sacred tradition that he didn't bother to put into his work, right? So in a, in a way, if you want to be Thomistic, you should do what Thomas did and go back to the first sources. Yeah. I feel like we see a little bit of that um, in a lot of Catholic stuff. Uh, like it, when you're up at CUA, I remember you'd see like new young Franciscans walking around and they would be like wearing like certain like fashions and they'd want to explain to you how Franciscan it was or how Dominican <laughs> it was or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, instead of kind of being Dominican or Franciscan the way Francis and Dominic were trying to be follow Christ, you know, they're kind of like taking the trappings that have grown up over yeah. hundreds of years and using that to become a better Franciscan and Dominican. Yeah, like I think is your point is like Francis and uh, St. Francis and St. Dominic weren't trying to be Franciscan and Dominican, like they were trying to follow Jesus, right? And Right. Yeah. And it's not that there's anything wrong with these things that grew up around it necessarily, yeah. but they're not the core. Right, right. Okay. And so as part of this like resource mont idea, um, of going back to kind of the fathers of the church and scripture more. It's also an idea that it's moving us back into the mindset of the great evangelization. Right. So the great evangelization is that first initial evangelization of the church in the first centuries when it was a minority, when it was kind of taking over the world very fast, and it was a very positive movement. And sometime after um, the church became kind of the majority institution that had to actually run you know, governments and society and the world, it kind of lost the orientation of the great evangelization. Yeah. It also then confronted Protestantism and it took an orientation of being apologetic where it's like, we're here to defend what we've done as opposed to explain ourselves in an accessible way 
that's attractive, that's like, you know, like much more like a positive way or an apologetic way. Yeah, we had a we had like a do you remember this was like in the very early days of a simple house? We had this like ministry visit that was like kind of weird. And uh, we showed up to somebody's door and she was like, uh, had just been visited by a missionary from a different church. Okay. You know, and it was like we spent the whole ministry visit trying to explain why the other church was wrong, you know, and we right. left and it was just like, ugh. <laughs> like right. that was literally the worst ministry visit ever. Um, yeah, I, there's a, it's interesting because like I grew up, you know, uh, in a very fundamentalist Protestant type atmosphere. And so the apologetics like worked for me, like I needed to hear some Catholic apologetics, right? But then when yeah. we go to, you know, Southeast DC and the poor, it's like, they just don't care. You know, yeah. they don't want to hear some answer to some weird Protestant attack on the Catholic church, yeah. you know, yeah. um, they need the good news, you know, right. and therefore all that like work you did trying to justify the Eucharist is just not solid work. You know, it's not, it's not mm -hmm. relevant to this missionary apostolate. Right. And so, um, it's just interesting. And I think what's, what's hard, I think for modern people to imagine thinking about times before Vatican II is I think that theology in the Thomas Aquinas, uh, I, I'm trying to say in the Thomas Aquinas sense, but only if you mean by that uh, Thomas be, being Thomistic the way Thomas was Thomistic, not this neo-scholasticism part. But what had happened was it was very difficult to do real theology anymore, meaning like sit down and say, how do I become closer to God by using my reason and this revelation, you know? It was much more a process of apologetics, of um, a neo-scholastic work. And Pope Benedict points this out. He actually has some writings on this where he's like, uh, it was difficult for his hero, who's Romano Guardini, to even get a job being a theologian. And he, he had a job being a theologian. One time Hitler got him kicked out from being a theologian. And other times he just wasn't getting tenure. He wasn't being recognized. It's like he was doing his own little project, which was mm -hmm. real theology, but it just wasn't in vogue enough for him to be successful, you know? But now when we look at the great thinkers of this like early 20th century, Romano Guardini is huge, but he wasn't recognized in his own time. Uh, related to that, though, is I think that after the council, there was a sense that they were reopening back up the sandbox of... Um, theology like it's like yeah. oh no no you need to go for it you need to go back to the original sources you need to like uh be creative you know kind of like taking away the intellectual tradition that had been um in place at that time and saying like we need to rework this and i think we got a lot of silly theology at that time too because it was like there wasn't a good intellectual tradition on how to do theology anymore right all right after the council people had to interpret the council. And there were these kind of like little interpretive uh, themes that they pulled out. Like one, and, and this is kind of problematic. Like one sense was the council emphasized simplicity. Uh, another idea was the council emphasized modernization and updating of the church. Um, there's this quote that was always told to me, and it was always told to me that this was said at the opening of the council. And the quote is that John the 23rd said, let's open up the doors or the windows of the church 
so that it can get out or the world can see in to the church. Or let fresh air in. There let was an fresh idea. Air in. Yes. Yeah. And apparently, this is not in the opening remarks of the council. If and anybody knows where he said this, like you have a good source, like please put it in the comments because there, we were there's having controversy. A hard time. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. controversy that this may have never been said, but yeah. this was widely quoted. It's like one of those mm -hmm. things where no one actually read the book and everybody knows what's in the book. <laughs> yeah. And it is a useful quote because it became an interpretive key to a lot of people. Right. You know, that were either letting the church out or were letting the world in became like the interpretive key, depending on how you interpreted throwing open the doors mm -hmm. and the windows, you know, mm -hmm. well, it doesn't appear. It's just not the sense you get from reading the opening of the council. And there's not good evidence that John the 23rd said it. So. Did you say you found a Snopes article about it? It wasn't Snow. I called it Catholic Snopes because it was this okay. guy who just said, I've been looking for this and I can't okay. find it. And it, we, it's like he could trace it all the way back to one reporter you know, wow. and um, so it could have been said. But my point is, even if it was said, like in private, yeah, uh, that's not the way John the Twenty Third opened the council. You know, right. I mean, like if he wanted that to be the thematic key to the council, he should have said it publicly. You know, yeah. So I think even if it was said in private, it's just not a very good key to understanding the council. Yeah, yeah. And the the important thing is also that that being the key was abused. In all directions. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And if you've never heard that quote before, you could probably forget everything we just said. But just that to yeah. me, that was very shocking because that like showed the level of confusion there was amongst the people who were teaching me mm -hmm. about the council. You know? Yeah. All right. So what are some of the unintended consequences of this? Some of these are not positive, some of these are positive. Right. I think we're talking mainly about um yeah, negative unintended consequences. Um, some of them have some good mixed in, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 We're not going to dwell on all the positive things, which I think we kind of summarized already in a way. Um, beauty architecture and church art. The Catholic Church totally caved <laughs> on beautiful <laughs> architecture after Vatican II. And yeah. um, I think that what happened was we kind of took the Protestant idea that churches were more about the people in them and not about yeah. the structure and the architecture. And yeah. one of the great things about Catholic churches is that um, they feel like a church even when no one's in them. Yeah. Right. Beautiful, beautiful churches. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and so yeah. you can go sit in a Catholic church and have a church experience even without the congregation. Whereas like a Protestant church, you go in there without the congregation, you're like, I'm in a very large room. <laughs> right. Right. You know. And also the the art the art and everything we put in these churches was way different. I mean, I grew up in a church where I think all the art was terracotta sculptures, and the stained glass was like real primitive, you know, just glass put up there and very small too. It didn't take up whole walls. It was like you know yeah. up in the top, a little like a skylight more than like a big stained glass window, you know. Yeah, and I would say. As a child, and even today, you know, you look at that stuff and you're like, if I really devoted, I'm not a talented artist, but, you know, if I spent three years and tried hard, I could make that, <laughs> you know, like, there's nothing masterpiece about it. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I grew up in a church that had um, no church art. 
actually. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, the, the church, I it was a new church. And, uh, originally we were meeting in a school cafeteria and there was like all this excitement about like fundraising for building the new church, you know? And when we finally broke ground, it was for an all purpose room, which right. had, yeah, it was like kind of plain, a little bit ugly. And there were like chairs that you would have to set up for every Sunday mass. And, um, you know, it was explained that this was like a temporary thing until we built the big, you know, church. And I don't know that a church is ever going to be built. That was like 20 years ago. I think that idea has been abandoned. They've added classrooms and stuff to the all-purpose room, um, which still has chairs that need to be set up and taken I, down. Yeah. I feel like your story, <laughs> I think our both of our experiences are very indicative of like the suburban church experience yeah. post-Vatican yeah. II, you know? And it's like, your story is like, they just gave up on church. <laughs> like It wasn't even a question of bad architecture. It's like, they did never attempted yeah, to build the church. Right. Like, was know? it? Yeah, there's, yeah. And, and I think, so that's like a specific example, right? But I think it, it kind of feels like there, there's a lot of that wherever you go when you're traveling, you know, right. you're on vacation, you see these kind of buildings. Where I grew up, there's like churches that were built right around the time I was born that I think people are dying to tear down you know right. <laughs> and i think that's fairly common and there's um i know an old monk who is a very sweet man and no one would ever say he's liberal or conservative they wouldn't even have an opinion on it who he is yeah. but you just know he just seems like a very good man very good priest yeah. and a year ago i was with him and he said you know i used to be pastor of a church in your neighborhood and i'm like oh yeah which church is it and it's this church that no longer exists it's a closed church it's an inner city neighborhood mm. and he told me the name and i was like he was like uh it's just like completely flat roof building <laughs> and i go he goes yeah he goes i was in charge of building that and i was like what he goes <laughs> yeah you know the old church which would have been very beautiful old like jesuit yeah. church that had been built in the neighborhood got torn down for a flat roof building and I go, you built that? And I was like, I didn't know if I was going to like lay into him or something. He's this old man. And he goes, he just looked at me, he goes, it was a different time. <laughs> and I go, but yeah. why? And he's like, it was a different time. <laughs> I, it, was, it was beautiful because it was like, he's lying to saying like, I know this looks totally ridiculous. Yeah. I know this was a mistake. I, I made, yeah. So it was, yeah. Um. And then also, it just wasn't even our churches. It was, and, and like the art in the churches. It was even like the line art in our Bibles. And even you see it today <laughs> in like the Christian prayer books. I have, here's, here's, can you beautiful see Beautiful art. I see Look that beautiful that. art. Yeah, yeah. And, I actually, I kind of like this art, but the other day you criticized it and I was like, no, I like it. And then there's just this like random butterfly that means like nothing on this one page. Like why? Yeah. I think you must like it literally because you've been retro. indoctrinated from your youth in it it's like it's mid-century modern art isn't it no, or, I, I don't like even the, know what I, you call it yeah i like it it feels like um you know when you like walk into a retreat center and everything is old and mustard and green and it's like the same furniture and it smells kind of weird and it's like comforting because you've been to retreat at a place like this before that's how i feel about this art musty mustard. have you ever been moved to beauty <laughs> or to glorify god from that art Oh, no, no. Okay, I just yes, like it because right. it's weird. I like right. it because it's weird. Yeah. <laughs> you very limitedly defended it. 
Yeah. Okay. I, I hardly defend it. Yeah. <laughs> the same thing that was going on with our churches was kind of going on with our liturgy at some level. There was a lot of liturgical experimentation right after the council. Um, I feel like most of that's gone away. Yeah. Even 20 years ago, you would see a lot more liturgical experimentation. Yeah. And once again, I feel like this was kind of borrowed from Protestantism that I started realizing the beauty of the Catholic liturgy uh, when I went to a Protestant funeral. You know, yeah. well, I, I've gone to a lot of Protestant funerals. Uh, mm-hmm. And the one of the... It could be like anything from an inner city funeral to a very well-heeled funeral. But the problem with it is you never know what's coming next. There's a sense of like making it up as you're going along. Like somebody knows what's coming next, but not you as the audience, right? And some of the stuff that comes is almost regrettable. And you're almost as like a viewing audience, like trying to judge, was this good? Was this not? And whoever is assigned to go give a prayer is like trying to outdo every other part of the service. <laughs> yeah. Like, let yeah. my prayer be the best yeah. prayer here, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I've been to really moving Protestant funerals, but yeah, what, what you're saying is you never know what, what you're going to get. And I, I've also been to Protestant funerals and weddings. Like, I've, I've been to lovely Protestant weddings, but I've been to some where I think like, oh, wow, <laughs> I'm so grateful for the Mass, you know, and there's just always substance no matter, yeah. And it's really not that some of these services aren't actually excellent. It's just as the audience person, you're always on this, like you don't know if you're going to give yourself over to the liturgy yeah. because there's kind of a lack of liturgy. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the situation after Vatican II and the Catholic Church too, that like, I remember, you know, having a lot of experiences where you would see something start to happen. Like people were putting on costumes in the back of church and you're like, what is happening? You're like (laughs) bracing yourself. Like, are they going to dance? Is this going to be, you know, and most of that today is hard to find, you know, like it used to be that like almost any church you went to, you might see some of that experimentation, but now you almost have to look for it. Yeah. I think people are still kind of afraid of it. Uh, and almost wrongly because yes, you have to find it. You can't, it's not just like you go to a different oh. church one weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I think what you're pointing out is like part of like, what's weird about the traditionalist movement sometimes is they say, well, we're against that. And you're like, well, that's almost dead. Where is that? You know, yeah. like that's yeah. not something that's happening normally anymore. So, yeah. yeah. but there also was this thing where uh, you and I both kind of hung out with the Catholic worker movement and Pax Christi and things. Yeah. And there was also like even more radical things happening where like women were trying to, uh, be priests or we're mm-hmm. trying to celebrate at the altar. Uh, mm-hmm. This was rare. It was like we listened to it. There's a great discussion by Bishop Barron and uh, Larry Chap. It came out in August of 2021 where they kind of talk about um, a very famous incident where I think the Bishop of Richmond went down the aisle in a Harley. And I feel like that story is not really doing justice because that is, that happened as far as I can tell. Yeah. And that's crazy, and that's not good. But yeah, that wasn't that was what we were all getting on a regular Sunday. Post-Vatican right. II was Harley's down the aisle, you know? But yeah. there were dioceses where, um, the Rochester, New York diocese where I was at, um, they would have a woman preach, usually a nun, every other Sunday. And I remember yeah. there was a priest who said he hadn't preached two Sundays in a row for 10 years, you know? Wow. And Yeah, I think the upstate New York diocese, as an example, did tend to be 
a little more out there. And one of our volunteers from upstate New York said her family would drive, you know, an hour to avoid the puppet show mass. So I I think that's, those are kind of almost as extreme, (laughs) more extreme, more unusual, but definitely were happening. We're happening. And now once again, it's really hard to find that, you know, that was extreme back then. And now it's um, almost non-existent. Yeah. All right. The so- oh, and also we have to mention the music at the mass. There, yeah. <laughs> there was a hope, and I remember this in the 80s, that there was this hope that if you put rock bands at mass or if you did something <laughs> with the music, yeah. all of a sudden all the youth would be at your mass. It was like very yeah. naive. It was like we can have yeah. the Beatles at mass and then all the crazy teenagers will want to come to mass. Right? Yeah, it didn't work. Yeah. Didn't work, right? <laughs> and the most famously, we have the Gather Hymnal. I haven't seen one of these in a minute, but maybe they're just not yeah. popular in Kansas City. It's not the worst thing in the world, uh, but there's a lot of mediocre music in the Gather Hymnal. Yeah. And as they started replacing it with like the Worship Hymnal, it just got a lot better, the music yeah. at mass. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I kind of get upset when people are so critical of the gather hymnal, uh, because I'm like, this is my heritage. (laughs) (laughs) Not really. Like I grew up with it, you know, but, but we used to talk about, there's, there's one, like, uh, there's a song in there, the God of the dance. Did that make the, uh, did that make the worship hymnal? I don't know, but it it actually was kind of like every once in a while you can write a new good hymn, you know, you just can't write. You just can't fill a whole hymnal with good hymns and expect them to be good, you know? Yeah, my friends in college loved the King of Glory because it was like a like a pirate song. Um, right. Was there. <laughs> right. I kind of yeah. like that song, too. But I, I guess not everything new in the Gather Hymnal should be lost. Like, we need to take what we can from it. But it was just an age yeah. of newness and experimentation, a lot of which was kind of lame. Yeah, well, and I, I yeah, I think kind of lame is like when I'm like, you know, sort of defend it not seriously you know you go back and look at those songs and like this is like lame uninspiring doesn't totally make sense (laughs) there is a lot of that yeah Yeah. so i'm i'm happy that there are more options yeah Um, i'm I'm happy in general the way the church has moved you know yeah Um, yeah and the other thing that was happening at this time was there was this attitude even at seminaries um that theology was changing mm-hmm. in, in the sense of becoming just very kind of the it was very much compromising with you could say the world you know both on sexual yeah. teachings on um women as priests like everything that's kind of like a little pet cause of the world they were hoping for a new theology that would encompass that right yeah. and you could even go to like a catholic college or you could go to a seminary and get that type of formation you know that also has fallen away. I, I see it. I see two things. One, I see seminaries that closed, you know, that had that yeah. type of attitude. Um, and I also see that a lot of the people who might still get that type of formation in college, they're just not Catholic for very long. And yeah. therefore, it's just not like an issue long term. You know, it's not like a big movement in the church anymore. I, I think it's not totally fallen away, though. I think people... Um, yeah, I don't know if it's a big movement in the church, but I, I, I do hear people occasionally, maybe not as much as I used to say, like when the church changes this teaching, you know, thinking right. that the church will finally update and get with right. the times, uh, teachings about marriage or priestly, uh, like gender in the priesthood. And right. I'm just like, I don't like, that's not, it's 
not changing. And I, so, but this idea that the church can just like, just decide to change this is like, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding, <laughs> you know, something there. that I would hear. I feel like the nineties were a turning point or an inflection mm-hmm. point on this. So mm-hmm. what you'd hear a lot back then was like, well, the Vatican council is still new. We're still unpacking what it means. Meaning like, yeah. they're still hoping that we're going to change some doctrine. Like we're s- still in the midst of implementing it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and the first guy I heard, uh, Michael Furman, he's kind of a famous Catholic. He, he just said, the Vatican council is 50 years old. Yeah, <laughs> we're not still unpacking it. And I think at the time when he said that, I was like, are you right? Because that sounds obviously right. But really, at this point, there have been like three bishops in every single diocese since the Vatican Council to the level it was going to be implemented. It's been implemented. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and I, I think like that's part of the like implementing of a of anything. Right. And implementing a council is just like a human element and a unknown element of how it's going to go, you know, Um and the popes since the council have been unwavering that yeah. we're not changing doctrine. Yeah. You know, not only was that the intention of St. John the 23rd, but, you know, yeah. John Paul II and Benedict and even Francis like, are not yeah. literally changing doctrine. Yeah. And that there's like, you know, we saw like Humanae Vitae after the council, you know, which people right. mistakenly thought that was going to go <laughs> a different in a totally different way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say, though, something else about... Um, just the theology is um it wasn't just weird about like the teachings like kind of the hard moral teachings of the church like i had professors in college that were teaching that the resurrection like didn't literally happen you know um yeah yeah i think we've covered this like on the church sex abuse crisis that there was like i've met seminary professors who came up to me and said truth does not exist and they were seminary yeah. professors, and it wasn't me trying to tease the words out of their mouth. It was like they told yeah. me that point blank because they thought I needed a correction, you know? Yeah, yeah. And to me, the 90s are this inflection point because I felt like during the 90s, like if you just agreed with the whole catechism, that was kind of a controversial position. Yeah. yeah. And what was weird about that, though, is there was a lot of people who agreed with the whole catechism of different ilks. Right. So you found yourself like with the Legionnaires of Christ defending the catechism. Right. But the Legionnaires weren't a healthy institution. You're like, this is weird, but they're my friend because we're the only people fighting for the Orthodox teaching of the church here. Right. And sometime around after that sex abuse crisis around 2001, things started to shake out. You know what I mean? A lot of like progressive people seem to have left the church. A lot of the weirder conservative movements within the church were getting called out you know, for having institutional problems. But it was like, um, it always made me think of like, I can't remember the right idiom, but it's like, you have like strange bedfellows. Like you felt, you found yourself like on the same team or in bed with these people. You're like, I don't even agree Mm with, I don't like the way you're bringing Christianity, but we're both for the catechism, you know? Yeah. Um, So let's go on to another thing. So another issue that was confusing after Vatican II was the emphasis on reverence uh, totally seemed to change. Um, there was this idea that God was going to be so much more available that like the idea of, um, public reverence, public piety was really decreased. Like the altar rails were taken away. The saying of public devotionals went away. Um, and there was a sense in which God was made, was taught to be way more close and more ordinary. Not all that's bad. Right. I I think we want God to be as available as possible. And I think that some public piety and some public reverence is actually um, moral signaling. 
just like yeah, a social justice yeah. warrior would morally <laughs> signal, you know. Um, and there also was this misplaced reverence that uh, I don't see this in the new traditionalist movement very much. But there was this idea that the priests were kind of like the princes of the church and never to be contradicted. You know, I, I, yeah, I I think uh, yeah, my my father has used the phrase "untouchable." They were untouchable. <laughs> yeah, and and this kind of attributed to the church sex abuse crisis because you never you never would challenge or you any weirdness that was in there. Like being holy should make you more normal, more accessible, and more human, right? And when yeah. you see someone and everyone's saying they're holy and they're like stilted and weird and behaving differently, that yeah. is a warning sign. Yeah. And I, I think like, um, I think that people, um, especially often you'll see like, you know, like not Catholic people are scandalized by priests driving nice cars or having nice watches. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and that's um, minor compared to what was happening. Yeah, you know, like, yeah, like I'll, I'll every once in a while, you'll see a priest and you'll see like his uh, suit is like really well cut. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about suits, but that's nice. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, like it used to be limos and like they'd get a license yeah. plate from the governor that would say the number. I think Chicago, uh, Illinois would give the cardinal and Chicago the license plate that had the number one on it, you know, yeah. and it was all kind of this weird thing. And the reason why that gets so weird is because wolves start coming into the church for it. The more yeah. wealth and power you signal the more you're going to have people coming into the church for impure motives. Right. right. And I think we saw that, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, in this new traditionalist movement, I feel like it's a way more of a lay movement. Like there's definitely like seminarians and priests who are part of it. But like I've been into really old like men's groups where like I was the youngest guy at like 40 mm -hmm. and they were all in their 70s. Right. Yeah. And they would never contradict anything. They would be very agreeable. If father came, they wouldn't even ask a question because it was just like whatever he said was great. And then I've also been in these younger men groups that are actually pretty traditional uh, in their what they kind of feel like they're on a mission to create more traditional liturgy. And they won't even invite the priest to the men's group. Yeah. <laughs> they seem a little bit annoyed when the priest shows up. Yeah. It's like yeah. um, it's just kind of a funny attitude difference. Yeah. I, I do see, um, I think it's largely gone comparatively, but I, I do see weird kind of misplaced reverence on priests still and some unhealthy church cultures, I think yeah. some religious orders, but yeah. I think we'll talk about that in yeah. the next episode. I just think it's a very different place than it was pre-Vatican II. Yeah, so yeah. So now, yeah. now it's kind of the outlier. Yeah, you know? absolutely, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So after all this chaos, you know, more traditionalism was needed. We needed to bring back reverence. We needed to bring back more piety, more kind of public piety, public reverence. We needed to bring back beauty. But why did, why, now we have to ask the question of, has the traditionalist movement become a problem, even though it's the correction that we're saying, has it yeah. also become a problem? Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem here is that there's this sense in which People think that Catholic tradition was destroyed, particularly by Vatican II. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the same way people will argue today that Western thought is being has been destroyed. And they'll say Western thought's been destroyed by Marxism and critical race theory and um, all these different types of corruptions that you see in kind of a radical, progressive, or liberal mindset. And it's like, I agree that a lot of those things are not good. 
and have a lot of errors in them. But you know what they also are? Inarguably part of Western tradition. You know, they did not come from any other culture besides the West. Right. You know, and so we need to fight against that. And I think that even the people, when we look at like some rosy pictured view of the older Western thought or the older church tradition, I think we're being um, inaccurate. Like Tom Aquinas would have been controversial in his own day. Just think about what that guy did. He went, bargained with Islamic uh, scholars to get the works of a pagan to basically rehabilitate this guy into Catholic thought, you know? And at his best, you know, Western tradition is known for high creativity and ingenuity, but it also has to be known for sorting out the good from the bad. You know, but almost every major thinker that we point out as being great was a con- was controversial mm-hmm. in their own time. So I'd like to conclude just by saying, like, I think that Vatican II actually moved us closer to tradition rather than away from tradition. But regardless of where you land on that issue, Vatican II is tradition at this point. So what would you what else are you thinking? Um, I don't know. I think just also closing idea is um like i think we both have uh like a lot of friends that lean maybe more traditional as well as people that are kind of worried and like we think are intelligent and respectable you know like we respect a lot and um i think the point of these podcasts that we're gonna do is not to um you know try to tear down or criticize totally right but uh what you're saying sort out the good and the bad and i think i wanted to say this is that like i've gone to a lot of traditionalist websites that are pretty stupid yeah and have a lot of bad scholarship um i started chasing all the footnotes on them related to like receiving communion in the hand versus on the tongue because my earliest memory is the father of the church explaining how to receive it in the hand you know Mm -hmm. and uh there was a lot of dumb bad scholarship there at the same time, when I like listen to podcasters, I there's some political podcasters. They're not po- they're not podcasting on Catholicism, but they are Latin Mass Catholics, and they are very interesting people. Super sharp, super smart. I respect all their opinions, um, but I don't know that this movement's fully healthy. So yeah. let's leave it with that. We'll come back and talk about the psychological and. Uh, spiritual problems that are in the movement and then do a final one on heresy please like subscribe comment give us feedback um as we continue to try to alienate everyone <laughs> uh, all right thank God you, bless. Talk to you, later. you. Bye. bye